Well, I find it funny that a member of our congregation who shall remain nameless because this is being recorded said to me this morning that the sermons are sometimes boring but very interesting because that's what today's sermon is, boring but interesting. If you like history, you're going to love this sermon. If you hate history, you might as well just put out your pillow and your blanket now because you'll be asleep in about 10 minutes. Okay? Yeah, history! Okay. So, I want you to turn, first of all, to Isaiah chapters 15 and 16. Put your thumb there, put your finger there. Then turn to Jeremiah chapter 48. And we're not going to take time this morning to read through chapters 15, 16 in Isaiah and chapter 48 in Jeremiah. But if you'll mark that for future reference and look at it sometime this week, you will find that God the Holy Spirit said basically the same thing to two separate prophets. It's, it's not word for word, but it is very similar. Scholars who have studied these passages of Scripture think that it was probably actually another story or writing or whatever that both Jeremiah and Isaiah referenced when they were writing their oracle about the land of Moab. I have no answer for you. No scholar can definitively tell you anything about the origins of Isaiah 15 and 16 and Jeremiah 48. We just understand as we look at it that they are similar. And we can trust, regardless of what source these prophets used as they were writing their prophecies, all of this was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, and God had a purpose and a reason and a plan for making these words part of the Holy Canon, what we call the Holy Scriptures. So, having said all of that, you can set the Jeremiah 48 aside and look at that later on this week. We're going to be looking at Isaiah 15 and 16, and again, we're not going to be spending a lot of time reading it this morning, but you need to understand, this is the, the third... No, fourth. This is the fourth oracle. Remember I said oracle a few weeks ago in the Hebrew actually means burden. Okay? It's this weighty, heavy, spoken thing that is spoken about the enemies of the nation of Judah. And in some cases it's identified just as Israel. Um, and initially it was that Isaiah spoke about an oracle to Babylon. Now we're talking about the various different enemies that are surrounding the nation of Judah, the city of Jerusalem. This particular one, if you happen to have those maps that I gave out a couple of weeks ago, if you will look at those maps to reference, I, I can't get it on the screen in any way or shape that works for you to be able to see it on the screen. The screen is not big enough for you to be able to, for me to be able to show you everything. But, but let me 
get you in your mind's eye, if you have any understanding of the geography of Palestine in this area, from your perspective, not mine, over here is the Mediterranean Sea. Here is Israel. Here is the Sea of Galilee. Here is the Jordan River. Here is the Dead Sea. And over here are some of the enemies of Israel. And then over here is Babylon and Assyria. Directly uh, east of the uh, Dead Sea is the nation of Moab. Okay? This oracle, this burden prophesied by Isaiah is to the nation of Moab. But remember I said a couple of weeks ago it was, a, it was to Moab, but it was really written for the kings and the leaders of the nation of Israel to understand that God was speaking against the nation of Moab. Okay, This wasn't a letter that was actually sent to the king of Moab. It was sent to the was written for the king of Israel to see, the king of Judah to see. Um, but it was about God's word about and for the nation of Moab. Now, before we go into what God said, we need to understand who Moab is or what the nation of Moab is. So does anybody know anything about Moab before I tell you stuff and bore you about things you already know? What do you know about Moab? That's where Ruth is from. That's what? That's where Ruth is from. Who is Ruth? Ruth is a book in the Bible, and she was also in Jesus' lineage. Okay. Ruth, if you remember, married Boaz, and Boaz and Ruth had a child named Obed, and Obed had a child named Jesse, and Jesse had a child named David, who was the king of Israel. Okay? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, now, Ruth, being a Moabitess, came back after her husband died, she came back with her mother-in-law Naomi to the nation of Israel and said, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And that's significant as we get into this study. See, Moab served a God named Chemosh. C-H-E-M-O-S-H. Chemosh, if you will. Another place you'll see the name of their god as Ashtar hyphen Chemosh. All the same. Chemosh was the god of Moab. Okay? So when Ruth the Moabitess comes back with her mother in law Naomi to the land of Israel after her husband dies, she says to Ruth, Do not ask me to leave you. I want to stay with you for the rest of my life. Your people have now become my people. Your God is my God. I am now a follower of the, of, the, of the God known as Yahweh. And she now enters into right relationship with God. And ends up becoming part of the, of the family lineage of Jesus. The great-great-grandmother or whatever. The great-grandmother, I can't remember the exact number. Uh, to King David himself. So, uh, what else do you know about Moab? Okay, let's go back to Abraham and Sarah and Abraham's nephew Lot and Lot's wife. Does anybody know the story of Lot and his wife and his kids? What happened? I don't remember talking about this. I know. Go ahead. Charlene, what do you think? 
Well, he chose Sodom and Gomorrah. He, he chose to settle in the area known as Moab, that became known as Moab. You're right. He chose to settle in the area that was known as, that became known as Moab. And he settled eventually in the city known as Sodom or Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, so the end result was Moab was a pretty nice place. The area was at one point a really, really nice place. At least the area that, that, that he was settling. It's, uh, I think it was, I can't remember off the top of my head. Zophar or Zoar? Anyway, um, the bottom line is this. Lot was living in Sodom with his family. God spoke to Abraham and said, I'm about to destroy the city of Sodom because of its sin. And and Abraham negotiated with God and said, well, would you spare the city if you could find a hundred righteous people? And God said, yes, I will. What about 50? What about 25? What about 10? And then finally God stopped the conversation and Abraham went back to his tents and the angels went on and they met Lot in the city. And Lot harbored them, housed them in his own home. And the, the angels told Lot, listen, God is about to destroy the city. You need to grab your daughters, your spouse and get out. And when you leave, don't look back, just keep going. Well, the end of the story is is that Lot and his wife and his two daughters leave and they're walking through the desert, heading away from the city when the city begins to be rained upon with fire and brimstone from the, from the Lord. And Abraham, I mean, Lot's wife turns around and looks and she turns into a pillar of salt. And God, I mean, and then Lot and his two daughters then go up into the mountains and they stay there. And then something really sordid happens. Lot's daughters say, now what are we going to do? And so they make a stupid plan, and they decide to get their father drunk. And they get their father drunk, and then one night, one daughter goes in and sleeps with her father, and she becomes pregnant. And the next night, they get their father drunk again, and the other daughter goes in and gets their father, uh, and then she gets pregnant by her father. And the child who went in first, her son's name was Moab. So, the land of Moab, the Moabites, are the direct descendants of Lot, who they are literally kissing cousins, if you will, to the people of Israel. Okay? They are blood-related, they are genetically related, culturally they are totally separate. Okay? They don't worship the same God. They do, if you look at the, if you look at history, and we're going to talk about this in just a second, you'll see that their, their language, their written language, is very, very close to, to Hebrew, which is why they, the scholars have been able to decipher their, their writings so readily. But the Moabites live just east of the, of the, of the Dead Sea. They are kissing cousins to the Hebrews, to the Jewish people. And they have a totally different culture. And we'll see in just a second, the Moabites, historically, are enemies to the nation of Israel. Okay, I don't have all of the references. I don't have time this morning to give you all of the references, but you can look them up. They're easy to find. But when the exodus was taking place, Moab played a part. They wouldn't let them pass through their land unless they stayed right on the king's highway. They wouldn't let them go off into their land. There's this big animosity between them. Number two, remember the story of Balaam and the donkey 
and the, the prophecy that Balaam was supposed to give? Well, guess who instigated that? The king of Moab. He wanted the nation of Israel to be stopped because of this animosity between the two. And then eventually, and I don't remember or know the whole story, but eventually the people of Moab ended up having to pay tribute to the king of Israel. And if you'll turn now to 2 Kings chapter 3, we're going to see in the Bible where the king of Moab rebels against the king of Israel and the Moab establishes themselves as an independent and free state. Second Kings chapter 3. Now, Joram, verse 1, Joram, son of Ahab, became king of Israel in Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned 12 years. At this point in time, Israel has been split. There was the civil war after King Solomon. So there's the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. And Joram, Joram is the son of Ahab, who were both kings over the northern kingdom, Israel. And they were the, uh, Joram was king at the same time that Jehoshaphat was the king of Judah. And if you'll remember, a number of weeks ago when we first started this, I passed out this chart of... Uh, the, uh, the, the kings. So if you want to take a time to look at that during your personal study this week, you'll see where all of these kings that we're going to talk about fall into the timeline. Alright, so Joram did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father and mother had done. He got rid of the sacred stone of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit, and he did not turn away from them. Now, Misha, the king of Moab, raised sheep. And he had to supply the king of Israel with a hundred thousand lambs and with the wool of a hundred thousand rams. But after Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So at that time, King Joram set out from Samaria and mobilized all Israel. He also sent his message to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? And the king of Jerusalem said, I will go with you. I am, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. By what route shall we attack? He asked. Through the desert of Edom. Now the desert of Edom is going from, again, from your perspective... Mediterranean Sea, Israel, Jordan River, Dead Sea, Edom. So they're going south under the Jordan, I mean under the Dead Sea to get up into Moab. Okay? So so we go through where did I where was I? Verse what? Verse seven and eight. Okay. What route shall we attack? He asked, through the desert of Edom, he answered. So the king of Israel set out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. After a roundabout march of seven days, the army had no more water for themselves or for the animals with them. What? exclaimed the king of Israel. Has the Lord called us three kings together only to hand us over to Moab? But Jehoshaphat asked, Is there no prophet in the Lord here that we may require of the Lord about through him? An officer of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, son of Shaphat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. Jehoshaphat 
said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Elisha said to the king of Israel, What do we have to do with each other? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. No, the king of Israel answered, because it was the Lord who called us three kings together to hand us over to Moab. Elisha said, As surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I wouldn't look at you. I wouldn't even notice you. Now bring me a harpist. It's kind of a crazy statement. Bring me, bring me a musician. <laughs> While the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha. And he said, This is what the Lord says. Make this valley full of ditches, for this is what the Lord says. You will see neither wind nor rain, yet this valley will be filled with water, and you, your cattle, and your other animals will drink. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He will also hand Moab over to you. You will overthrow every fortified city and every major town, and you will cut down every good tree and stop up all the springs and ruin every good field with stones. The next morning, about the time for offering, the sacrifice, there, there it was, water flowing from the direction of Edom, and the land was filled with water. Now all the Moabites had heard that the king had come to fight against them, so every man, young and old, who could bear arms was called up and stationed on the border. And when they got up early in the morning, the sun was shining on the water. To the Moabites across the way, the water looked red like blood. That's blood, they said. Those kings must have fought and slaughtered each other. Now to the plunder, Moab! And when the Moabs came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up and fought them until they fled. And the Israelites invaded the land and slaughtered the Moabites. They destroyed the towns, and each man threw a stone on every good field until it was covered. And they stopped up all the springs and cut down every good tree. Only Kerharaseth was left with its stones in place. But men armed with slings surrounded it and attacked it as well. And when the king of Moab was, saw that the battle had gone against him, listen to this, this is horrible. When the king of Moab saw the battle had gone against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through to the king of Edom. But they failed. Then he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and he offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. The fury against Israel was great. They withdrew, and they returned to their own land. Now, before we get into discussing what just happened, let me tell you a bit of history. In 1868... In what at the time was controlled by Turkey, what is now known as Jordan, but what during this time was known as Moab. Okay? There was a man named Misha. And Misha was the king of Moab. And Misha fought a great battle against the Israelites. And Misha did a wonderful thing. He offered his son in sacrifice to the god Chemosh. And the god Chemosh brought victory over our enemy, the Israelites, the, the servants of Yahweh. The, king of, the, the, the kingdom of David's throne. Uh, Mesh, me, uh, 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 what's his name? The king. Meash. I can't ever say these names right. He defeated them. And he ended up putting up a stone... And that stone 
became a, a memorial stone. Misha, that's it, sorry. Misha put up a stone in the land of Moab for all people that come through to see how great a victory he had against the Israelites, the servants of Yahweh, and the son of that reigning King David's son, those sons, I don't remember the names of them. Bottom line is, he had this huge statue. It was about, about three and a half feet tall, a little over two feet wide, a little over a foot thick. It was made of black basalt. And it was 34 inscribed lines in the language of the Moabites. And it stayed in that land until it was discovered by a German minister who was in... Uh, in that area as a missionary bringing health and healing and soul uh, saving to the people and one of his friends the, the missionary had a friend who was a Bedouin, one of these tent dwellers that moved all over the place that told him about this what's known as a stele a steel or a stele or a stela it's a basic, it's like a like a headstone, a memorial stone and um he said, I'd be interested in seeing that. Again, the year 1868. The very first white man since the Crusades to be allowed into this area. And uh, they show it to him and he looks at it and he goes, that's really interesting. And he goes back and he gets on the phone. There is no phone, but you get my meaning. You won't believe what I just found! You guys gotta give me authority to buy this! He called back to Germany to the museum and they authorized him to make a payment of up to $400 the equivalent in that money back then and he went to the Bedouins he said yeah I'd be interested in buying that if you'd be willing to sell it and to make a long story short when somebody realizes that they have something of value they realize that you know if you're, play, if you're playing it cool but you're willing to offer a lot of money this must be worth a lot much more than you really are offering so no we're not going to sell it right now and all of a sudden, word gets out about it, and other people, somebody from England finds out about it, somebody from France finds out about it, and the bottom line is, there's this bidding war going on. Well, the Bedouins, who are not a government, they're just a group of people that, a bunch of different people that roam around, they go, hey, this has got a lot of value to it, there must be something really special about this, so what do they do? Now, this, what had been standing up by this time, 1868, is actually laying down in the ground. He was kind of surrounded by all the dirt and packed in. Um, this guy that originally came, he lifted it up to see what was underneath and saw it was just blank and so he laid it back down in the dirt, but it's there. Well, these Bedouins are going, ooh, this is valuable. You know what? Let's dig a trench around it and let's put a fire around it and get it so that it's white hot. This black basalt stone, get it white hot and then pour cold water in it so it shatters into a million pieces and we can take this, this wonderful little trinket that we can put into our homes and it will bring good blessing on us. Okay? But before that happened, one of these guys that was really excited about all this had done what is called a squeezing of the stele of Misha. And this squeezing, imagine you take pulp, like paper pulp, and it's all wet, and you lay it across the surface of the stone where the, the words are all carved out of the surface, and you squeeze that wet pulp down onto the surface, and you let it dry. And when it's completely dry, you carefully peel it up, and you have a reverse image of everything that was on that ceiling. 
So, this is going on. This guy is making a squeezing, and all of a sudden the Bedouins start in an uprising, and the guy freaks out, and it's not completely dry, but he grabs it and runs, and it tears into seven different pieces, and he goes for his life back to Europe, and then they burn this thing and shatter into a million pieces, not a million, but shatter into pieces, and then it gets distributed all over the place, and it's not lost, because the Louvre in France is able to purchase, I don't remember how many pieces of it, 54 pieces or something like that. And because they had that squeezing, and they had the pieces, they were able to put it together and then recreate or refashion the missing parts. And then because it was a Hebrew form of writing, because the Moabites are kissing cousins to the Hebrews, they were able to decipher it and they were able to understand that this was this monument that Maash erected about this battle that we just read about in 2 Kings chapter 3. This monument, this, I, I, I can't remember the name of it, it's the Moabite Stone, if you look it up on the internet. Moabite Stone, it's at the Louvre in, front, in France. It is only the second piece of antiquity that has ever been found that confirms the dynasty of David. It is also the oldest piece that has ever been found that confirms the dynasty of David. So it's a pretty significant find archaeologically. The thing that's cool about it is as you study what the Bible says and as you study what Maash said about his own battle, there's this difference of the storytelling, but the reality is something happened and a battle happened and going back to this thing about him sacrificing his son to, Kim, to, to Kimash, what a horrible, horrible thing. Scholars who study this think that when the people of Moab, the, the, the army of Moab saw what um, Maash, their king, did in sacrificing his son, that gave them a new fervor to fight and they fought off those, those Israelites and they won the battle. Who knows what happened? We don't have it written here, and it's not given clearly in any other historical thing. But what we do know is that it says that the fury against Israel was great. This is the very last verse, chapter three, 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 27. The fury against Israel was great. They withdrew, and they returned to their own land. And Moab ends up, for 200 years, their own selves, their own people, uh, an entity without anybody over them anymore. They don't have to pay tribute to anybody. Now we come to Isaiah chapter 15 and 16. And again, we're not time, taking time this morning to read it. But if you look at the very end of chapter 16, verses 13 and 14, the Lord is speaking through Isaiah and he says, This is the word the Lord has already spoken concerning Moab. Okay, that's the the, the previous bit of 15 and 16 is all of the telling of what we just talked about. Okay, In this prophetic utterance, it's the talking about the stopping up of the, of the wells and the, the ruining of all the, the things. And the people, literally, there's a story about them streaming out of Moab as in a refuge situation, trying to find some respite because the hordes of Assyria are coming down and taking over. But the bottom line is, it says in verse 14, but now the Lord says, chapter 16, verse 14, but now the Lord says, within three years, as a servant bound by contract, would count them. 
Moab's splendor and all her many people will be despised, and her survivors will be very few and feeble. And so what God is saying through his prophet Isaiah is this nation who has set themselves up for the better part of 200 plus years, as this nation that has fought off their enemies, established themselves as an entity that is owning nothing to anyone and serving their God wholeheartedly to the point where they even sacrifice their children to that God, they now are being told by the true God, it's over with. The thing that, if you look at Numbers chapter 22, you don't have to look at it, you don't have to turn to it, but if you read in Numbers chapter, um, excuse me, not Numbers, forgive me, I didn't mark it. I apologize. If you look at what it says when when you're talking about a prophet, the Word of God says, if someone stands up and speaks as a prophet, they have one bit of worry on their heart. If they say, thus says the Lord, and it doesn't come to pass, you, Israel, can know that they're not speaking for me, and the penalty is that they must die. Okay, So every prophet that ever speaks a word said, knows that that's the rule. If you stand up and say, I'm a prophet of God, and God and the word of God doesn't come true, then you're, you're subject to death. Okay, Isaiah chapter 16, verse 14, Isaiah very clearly says, Thus says the Lord, in three years you, Moab, will be gone. That's a pretty scary thing for a prophet to have to say. Because now the clock is ticking. And quite honestly, there's not a scholar on the face of the earth, nor has there ever been a scholar on the face of the earth that can point to any event that actually says, yes, that's the prophecy being fulfilled. Except the fact that we know that Babylon came and destroyed Moab, along with everybody else that they destroyed. But the, but the point being is this, and this is, this is where I was, where I was um, struggling with this morning and wrestling even this morning as I was trying to, 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 to process how I wanted to speak to you. I kept saying, God, this is, this is an interesting story. It's cool. It's fun from the historical perspective. And it's really neat that there's even evidence even in the modern day about all this. But what in the world does this have to do with me today? What is it that I can say to these people that's going to mean anything to them that they're going to take back? Or are they just going to go, yeah, that was boring. And what the word that I received from God, and I don't know if it was for you or if it was just for me, was this. The Moabites, people who should have been servants of the Most High God, but because of the choice of one man, Lot, separating himself, and then not following the path of his, his family member, Abraham, ended up going into the, what he saw was the choicest and choosing what was best for, in his eyes. And the end result was choice after choice after choice after choice from that time until whenever led to the point where his descendants were willing to sacrifice their children to a false god, to a demon. I mean, from being in the household that was going to bring blessing to all of the nations, being in Abraham's house, Lot made a bad decision, whose daughter made a bad decision, whose great-great-great-great-grandson made a bad decision about fighting against the Israelites, who made bad decisions about 
Balaam, who made bad decisions about, until finally it gets to the point where they're broadcasting how glorious their battle was and how wonderful it was that they killed their son and their God honored that. And what I heard God saying to me was, there are people that are, that are out in my world, family members of mine, who are living just the way that Lot did. Or maybe as the grandson or the great-grandson, making bad choice after bad choice after bad choice, drawing themselves farther and farther and farther away from the truth. And I need to pray for them. I can't do anything else. I mean, I can't make them change their heart. But I can pray for them. And the bottom line, the other thing, and this sounds kind of selfish, but the other thing is, is praise God for the grace of God that saved me out of that. Now, that's not an inspirational thing, but for me, as we were singing and praying this morning, it was just coming into a head for me. God was saying, you're mine. I love you. I care about you. I desire you. I have plans for you. And if you'll continue to serve me, we're going to have a great thing going. And that's the choice I see. I can either serve God and be right with God and love God, or I can be on the opposite side and be totally self-absorbed and think that the horrible things that I'm doing are good and worthy of being remembered forever. And that's, that's the message that I hear here that Isaiah is saying to his people about these people, the Moabites. They were your cousins, and they took a wrong turn. And they made some bad choices to the point where they're literally, they're on their way to hell. There's no hope for them. They're going to be destroyed. Stay with God. Keep focused on God. Pray for them. Love them. Speak truth to them whenever they'll listen. But stay with God and keep your focus only on Him. Keep your focus only on Him.